Well, our studies back in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 5, so let's take our Bibles and turn there. The apostles have just taken several strong stands for the Lord. First, in dealing with the very serious deception of Ananias and Sapphira at the start of chapter 5. And then in an effective ministry uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in the middle of the section. And then in verses 17 to 26, as we studied last week with the bold outward expression of their conviction before this religious council that had gathered to, to threaten them and to call them to task. But even after being threatened and thrown into jail, which the Lord delivered them from in the night and put them back out and led them out of the, of the prison, we saw at the end of our study last week that they go right back into the temple and they start to preach about Jesus Christ. Now, that created a very significant problem for the religious leaders who are all together, we see that in verse 21, because at this point, they have taken an opposing position against the apostles. And remember, it's not just against the apostles, but it's against the multitude, that's the word in the text, the multitude of people now that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And not only are these men complicit in crucifying Jesus, but they were the ones who had instigated it. So they can't hide at this point. They can't say, well, we didn't know what we were doing. They had been open about their opposition. And and now the, the authority of the Holy Spirit is clearly on the apostles. The the power and the and the uh, influence is not with these religious leaders who are still telling themselves that they're the ones that everybody listens to. But the crowd's attention's turned. And people now by the droves, by the hundreds, by the thousands, are putting their trust in Jesus Christ to the extent, as we saw in the last verse last week, verse 26, that when they call the apostles to come back to jail to to face the charges, that they're worried that if they do it in the wrong way, that the crowd's going to stone them. Now, that was unthinkable that you would uh, turn on a religious leader that way. But that's how the Titus turned at this point. So, As they bring the apostles back into the court, I want you to get this between verses 26 and 27. There is is a different atmosphere present in the text. And now these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the high priest and the Senate, they're all posturing. They're trying to exude confidence. They're trying to show that they're still in control. But you can sense in the text, and this is where we've got to discern from the Spirit, read between the lines a little bit, You can sense in the text that there's an uneasiness. You can sense that they're not quite as confident as they were in chapter 4 when they arrested the apostles. Now there's a sense of a little bit of being back on their heels. And they recognize, and the apostles recognize, and even the crowd outside recognizes, that the true power and influence is not with them, it's with the apostles. So as we read, sense that, feel that, shift in tone and the difference in force between the two sides words okay let's start just with the first section chapter 5 book of acts thank you for turning let's look at verse 27 when they had brought them they stood them before the council the high priest questioned them saying we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you filled jerusalem with your teaching And intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, the high priest gets up again and He's not only motivated by jealousy, we saw that back earlier in the text in verse uh, 15, verse 17, but now he's also fearful that he's losing control of the situation. So you have to read the tone in which he says what he says, and you have to infer it knowing where he is spiritually and how irritated and jealous he is. I believe with all my heart that there is great attitude here that he's very condescending in his tone, that if he's got glasses, they're kind of out on the end of his nose, and he's kind of pointing at them, uh, acting like he's a big shot, acting like he's authority, and he speaks down to them, and he scolds them, and he says, let me just remind you that we told you to be quiet. Let me just remind you, on the authority of the high priest, that we gave you strict orders not to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Now that, right there, in verse 27, is the defining issue. It's always the defining issue. Whenever we speak the name of Christ, and we just sang about it several times, whenever we speak the name of Christ, it will cause opposition. Anybody who is contrary to the name of Christ, or doesn't believe in the name of Christ, or, or has some kind of problem with who Jesus Christ is, whenever we speak the name of Christ and say we believe in Jesus Christ, somebody's going to be offended and somebody's going to oppose it. In fact, and this would be a, this will be a very difficult statement for us to hear and in some ways to believe. The effectiveness of the church and the effectiveness of ministry really should be measured by how many people oppose us rather than how many people accept us. The church growth movement has gotten that completely backwards. If we are naming the name of Christ, people are going to be irritated. And they're going to be opposed to it. And they're going to be offended by it. And they're going to curse us and criticize us because we believe in Christ. But Jesus told us, blessed are you when men revile you and curse you and say all kinds of nastiness about you because you stand for me. Blessed are you when people even persecute you for my name's sake. And yet, somehow, we have misinterpreted that and reinterpreted that to say, blessed are you when men accept you and approve of your message and you easily relate to them because you don't challenge them. The church is not called to that. You and I have a dichotomous ministry. We have a ministry that is, that is uh, on one side and then on the other. Our job is to declare the name of Jesus Christ, to declare that he is the only Savior, declare that he is the Lord of all. Now, in doing that, and that's wonderful news, that's the greatest message we can declare. In doing that, people are going to be offended by it. So one part of our ministry is always going to have opposition and irritation. And yet the other part of our ministry is then to show genuine love to show mercy, to show grace, to talk humbly about how God has transformed each of our lives when we were worthless and lost and going in the wrong direction, 
so that people will see the reality of the gospel message in us. The gospel is always effective. And it's effective here because their words and their conviction and their lives match. And that starts to get through. And the fact that the high priest says, you intend to bring his blood on us, is a personal indictment and he doesn't even realize it. This is an ironic admission that they were already guilty for killing Christ. You remember, they were part of the crowd that screamed, crucify him. Crucify him. And you remember the next phrase? And let his blood be on our hands. And yet the high priest stands before them and he says, you guys, you intend to bring his blood on us. You intend to put his guilt, uh, the guilt of this on us. And all Peter would have to do is say, seem to recall that you were standing in the crowd chanting that we should crucify him. See, their shame is already evident. Their guilt is already evident. But they still try to hide it. Look at the text. They try to intimidate the apostles into stopping. The problem is the apostles are not scared and they're not unsettled. In fact, immediately after the high priest says, we told you to stop, they say, well, the problem is we're not going to stop. We have to obey God versus you. If you're going to call us to a choice, whether we obey God or we obey man, it's not even a contest. We're not even going to think about that. We don't really care what you do because this is this is not something that we have to debate. We have to obey the Lord. And if you're going to stand there and disrespect and disobey and oppose the Lord, we're really not going to do what you're going to do because we have to obey God. Now, what's interesting here is how Peter makes his defense. He doesn't say, hey, look, high priest, we have a right to, to stand in the temple and talk. We have a right to go out into the public square and, and to speak about what we want to speak. Uh, this is the approach sometimes we take in, in terms of trying to defend ourselves. We have a right to speak. And, and Peter also doesn't give some kind of an emotional appeal. Oh, please let us. It's just so important to us. He doesn't go into that. Look at what he does. Between verses 27 and 32. Eight times he talks about the Lord. Over and over again, he brings it back to God's plan to send Jesus to offer forgiveness. And he does it in a way that reminds these religious leaders of the words of the prophets that they had completely ignored. He keeps saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. How many know the power is in the name of Jesus? He keeps talking about Jesus. He's just been told, you guys are not supposed to talk about Jesus. And Peter humbly but defiantly says, we're going to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is our Savior. And Jesus is our Lord. And Jesus is the one that you guys crucified. You didn't even use Jewish methods to kill him. You used the Roman method to kill him. You're the ones who killed Jesus. And you know what? Jesus is alive. Where's his body if you think he's not the Savior? Why don't you guys produce it? He's not dead. He's alive. And we worship him. And we're going to keep talking about him. And you can't do a thing about it. He knows the power is in the name of Jesus. Four times he talks about God. Three times he talks about Jesus. One time he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says Jesus is the Prince and Savior. He's come to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. 
People with this kind of knowledge of Scripture, the Pharisees had memorized the first five books of the Bible. They knew the words of the prophets. They knew all the testimony about the Messiah. He says to them, think about what you've heard. Isaiah chapter 9, He will be the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 53, He will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And by His scourging we're healed. My righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. Do you guys remember what John the Baptist said? That he said, repent, because the one who is going to save is coming after me and you need to turn your hearts. It is unthinkable at this point that people as educated and knowledgeable in the Old Testament as the Pharisees and the Council and the Senate could miss the message that Peter is giving them. You guys have evidenced your guilt. You've evidenced your hypocrisy. And and your blindness couldn't be more obvious. You have incriminated yourself. So don't say to us, you're trying to put his blood on you. You've done it to yourselves. But notice in the text that Peter's words have almost no discernible effect. Because their pride is so strong. And listen, when people are filled with pride, they can't see the reality of their own inconsistencies. And they can't see the lack of logic in their own beliefs. The prevailing religious system of that day was still very works-based. The Pharisees were the proponents of an incorrect theology. They had altered the teaching of the law because many people couldn't read. They had fit it to their own bias and their ego. They had dismissed Jesus' teaching as incorrect. They had opposed Him. They had killed Him. They wanted nothing to do with the message of God's grace. Why? Why wouldn't people gravitate toward the fact that Christ will die for our sins and rise again and forgive us if we believe? Why don't people go to that? They don't go to it because of arrogance. And no one was more arrogant than the Pharisees. They knew the law. They kept the letter of the law. No one was as good as them in their own minds. No one could match up to their religiosity and their spirituality. To be a Pharisee was to be rigid and intolerant of anybody who didn't agree with you. Not didn't agree with the Scripture, but didn't agree with you. There was no forgiveness. There was no grace in their pride. They drew attention to themselves they, they, they tried to intentionally make everybody else feel, you will never achieve my level of greatness. So along come these guys who have no formal education, they have no religious background, and they're from Galilee of all places. Galilee was inferior. It was the dregs of society. It wasn't like Jerusalem and Judea where the educated Pharisees would walk in their long robes with the phylacteries and the bells so people would look at them. These guys were just commoners, fishermen, tax collectors from Galilee. And yet they recognize that now they've grabbed the attention of the crowd not through tricks, not through some kind of manipulation, but by standing and saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. And now they sense the shift that's taking place to the extent that tens of thousands of people are committing themselves to Christ and the Pharisees are still standing there smugly and arrogantly trying to exert their control. This couldn't have been more disturbing to them. And then Peter gets up and he says, 
You guys blew it. You not only missed Jesus, who was the Messiah and fulfilled every prophecy that was made about him. And not only did you reject Jesus, but you actually killed him. And now in your pride and your religious arrogance, you're going to stand here and say to us, you can't talk about him. Forget it. We're going to talk about him all we want. And the words that are said here are so truthful. Look at it in verse 33. We'll read it in a second. They're so truthful and they're so damaging because they are truthful that the Spirit says that the whole council was cut to the quick. I don't know if you get what I get in the winter. I, my hands get so dry because I hate lotion. And my hands get so dry. Anybody else get this where you get the little cuts right right there at the, at the corner of your finger? Those things are painful. I got one on my left hand right now. It's just killing me. Why? Because it goes deep and it spreads and it's, ah, ah, I need to put a bandaid on. Well, that's the phrase here. But in the original language, it goes much more deeply than that. The phrase in the Greek literally means to cut in half with a saw. When Peter stands up and says, we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. He's the one that you crucified and we're going to stand for him and we're witnesses of him and we obey him. It says in the text that the whole council, it was like their hearts and minds were cut in half with a saw. It was grievous to them. It was mentally torturous to them. They were in pain. Every one of their beliefs, every one of their actions that they had taken against Christ was being challenged. And now they're so angry and so hostile that right there they want to kill the apostles to take the pressure off their own throats. But not only are they talked out of it, and we'll study that in a second, but the fact is that they have no power at this point to stop the spread of the gospel. The truth is too real and the apostles are too influential and the people are too receptive for this group of men to somehow negate the impact of salvation through faith in Christ. And, and that is how it should be. It should be that the enemies of the gospel, the people that oppose the gospel, the people that stand against Jesus Christ should be powerless because the power of the gospel in our lives and out of our mouths is so strong and so influential that they can't do anything about it. There is such a fearlessness here in Acts 5.32, and it has nothing to do with the apostles now having three years of experience or them having some kind of courage that's developing and some kind of intestinal fortitude. It has everything to do with their faith in Christ and their confidence in the gospel. So they get to the place where they say, uh-uh, no, we, we, we used to be weak. And we used to be timid. And we used to be ashamed of Christ. And when you guys arrested him, we all ran. And Peter, the one who's speaking to you now, he denied Christ three times and swore the third time. Now, we used to be those guys. We're not those guys anymore. Uh-uh, the gospel's changed us. The power of Christ has filled us. 
We're not the same. So you guys can threaten us and all that, and that's wonderful. You really don't have any power. But we're telling you right now, we're not going to stop talking. Now the situation, <laughs> needless to say, this is an understatement, in verse 32, gets extremely tense. The apostles are strong and confident. They're not backing down one inch. And the council's furious, but they're nervous. And they're not sure what to do next, but they want to kill some people. Look at what happens next in verse 34. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel... Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came up to nothing. After this, men, Judas of Galilee, came up in the days of the census. That's interesting that the Spirit would throw in that part. And threw away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I say to you, of course, just to interrupt there, he's ignoring the fact that this is not 400 people. This is tens of thousands of people. So he's kidding himself if he thinks this is just some minor rebellion and some person that's arrogant that got a couple hundred people to follow him. This is far more than that, but he ignores that. In this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or actions of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be even be found fighting against God. Then they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. That's familiar. And then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, you may recognize that name in verse 34, Gamaliel. Paul says in Acts 22 that Gamaliel was his primary teacher when he was learning the law and that he was being trained to be a Pharisee. Gamaliel was, was a high-class, high-priority dude. He was as respected as it gets in the council. So when Gamaliel spoke... Everybody was quiet. And Gamaliel stands up to speak. Now that creates a very interesting possibility. And I heard my father teach about this some time ago. And I never thought about it before. But the more I looked at it, the more it made sense to me. There is a very realistic possibility at this point that Paul himself is sitting here in this scene. Now he's still Saul at this point. And Gamaliel's there, and Paul has studied under Gamaliel, and Paul is the prize student, because he says in Philippians 3, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was the highest ranking. If you wanted to look at somebody that was doing it, it was me. So it is well within reason, if we look back at verse 17, and it says, everybody was gathered, the whole council, the high priest, and all the senate. It is very reasonable to conclude that Paul is one of the ones who is sitting here. And then you add to it that he was at Stephen's death in chapter 7, that he became the main spy, the main terrorist against Christians starting in chapter 8. And it's, again, very likely that Paul himself 
is sitting here in this scene. Now that's important. Because even though at this point they're unanimous in their opposition and they want to kill the apostles, I want you to think about the impact of the apostles' boldness and the effectiveness of their defense of the gospel on someone who was as intelligent and rational as the Apostle Paul. When the apostles were scourged and left, and the council was sitting there, because you know there's always conversation after they leave, right? They didn't just say, well, we're done. Bye. See ya. Check you guys out tomorrow. They sent them out and had them scourged, and then there was conversation. How much did what happened here in chapter 5 stick with Paul before the road to Damascus? And after Paul got saved and God gave him this commission, how much did he find strength in what he had seen here when he would go into a hostile city and there would be opposition and people would want to stone him and there was every reason to fall back on his Pharisaism and and, and to drop back? How much did he find strength in thinking about the day he sat in the council and watched Peter say, you will not shut us up? How much did he find strength and confidence? See, we never read about the other apostles writing to Paul to encourage them, him. If anything, from the outset, they were skeptical of him and they avoided him. But I have to believe that he's influenced by their boldness there. And even that the Spirit maybe began to use this episode to soften his heart toward the Lord. Even though he would still stand against God and even though he would still kill believers in the next few chapters. I wonder if the Spirit started to tug on him and convict him and say, Paul, you're wrong. You're wrong. Do you see what's going on here? You're intelligent. Hey, hey, Paul, do you see your teacher standing up there giving bad advice? We'll study that in a minute. Do, do you see him saying what's wrong and what is what is passionless and what is defenseless? Do you see that? Do you see the boldness of these men who have no right to be bold and no education to be able to argue against this council? And do you see your colleagues over here? They're not strong at this point. They're timid and scared and worried and they're threatening and the threat has no impact. Do you see that, Paul? Listen, we never know what kind of impact our conviction and our witness can have of the heart of somebody who's watching. Even somebody who is an enemy of Jesus Christ. There is no way that Peter and the other apostles could have imagined